0: I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is author David Philip Mullins. David Philip Mullins grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, and is the author of Greetings from Below, Stories, which won both the Mary McCarthy Prize in Short Fiction and the International Walter Scott Prize for Short Stories. He is a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and his work has appeared in many publications, including the Yale Review, the Massachusetts Review, New England Review, Ecotone, and Gulf Coast. He has received the Silver Pen Award from the Nevada Writers' Hall of Fame, a Stanley Elkins Scholarship from the Sewanee Writers' Conference, the Dorothy and Granville Hicks Residency in Literature from Yaddo, an Individual Artist Fellowship in Literature from the Nebraska Arts Council, and a Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. A resident of Omaha, Nebraska, where he teaches in the MFA program in Creative Writing at Creighton University, he is at work on a new novel. Dave, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Stuart.
1: So, my first question, why do you write? Why do I write? Um... Yeah, that's, that's something I think about quite a lot. In fact, I was, I was thinking about it just today before I came here, uh, as I was sitting at my computer trying to, to figure out what to write about. Uh, <laughs> I was asking myself, why do I do this? Um, uh, you know, I, I think the best answer that I could provide is that I love, I really love language. Um, you know, kind of the, uh, the, the core of why I do it is that I, I love writing and tinkering with sentences. Which, of course, is, is such a big part of the process. Uh, one of the things I tell my students a lot is, um, that, uh, in an interview once, or I think she was giving a reading, maybe Joan Didion was asked, uh, what she, what advice she could offer to an, a, an aspiring writer. And she said very simply, you better love sentences. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so I think that's, that's kind of why I started doing it when I was about 17 years old. Um, I used to, uh, read J.D. Salinger quite a lot uh, in high school. Um, continued reading him throughout college and, and uh, in my twenties. And one of the things that I loved about Salinger's short stories was kind of the playfulness and inventiveness of his language, and that really drew me into uh, to reading and to writing. And I, I kind of wanted to, you know, at a young age, do what he did, uh, which was to write sentences that were unique and interesting and that could be read. Uh, solely for the, sort of the joy of reading language, you know, setting aside the content of what he was even writing about. So yeah, that's one of the reasons I do it. Of course, I love storytelling as well, and I love creating characters, but yeah, but language is, is the thing that's always drawn me to the process.
0: You mentioned the age of 17, and so I'm wondering how writing, reading, literature showed up in your childhood.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I wasn't a big reader when I was, when I was a kid, when I was younger. Uh, my father was always a pretty voracious reader. And so we always had books around the house. Um, my father, I, I think wrote poetry when he was younger. Uh, I, I believe he, he talked about that a little bit when I was a kid. I never saw any of it, but he was an electrical engineer. And so reading was kind of a, a hobby for him but uh but he had a real love uh uh for uh, for fiction and poetry and uh, for some reason i i didn't take to reading right away um I was I was a a junior or a senior. I, was, I guess I was a senior in high school when I took a, an AP English class um, with a teacher named Mr. Halpern, and he uh, he really got me into into reading in, in a way that uh, that never really interested me before. And from from then on, I, I just kind of started reading constantly. You know, I, for a long time, I would read a, a book or two a week if I had the time. Sometimes a you know a book in a day. Um, you know, so going, I, I went from not reading at all really to reading that much when I was about, like I said, 17 years old, thereabouts. And in that that high school class, I, uh, I remember, <laughs> I can tell a very brief story about how I actually started writing. Uh, there was a kid named Chris Harris in my class who was the sort of Mr. Everything of our high school. He was a varsity athlete, varsity swimmer. He was a good looking guy. Uh, everybody knew him. Everybody liked him. Got very good grades. He was the valedictorian of our class, uh, or one of them at least. And anyway, one day in this uh, AP English class, he was writing a poem. And I watched him over his shoulder as he wrote this poem. And I actually had the thought at the age of 17, if Chris Harris is writing a poem, that must be a cool thing to do. <laughs> so, so I decided to start writing a poem, and I was kind of a uh, a Grateful Dead fan at the time. So I wrote this ripoff poem uh, of, of these Grateful Dead lyrics, and uh, and I showed it to Mr. Help, at the end of class, and he lied to me and told me it was very good, and that I should, <laughs> I should keep writing poetry. And, and honestly, that's that changed that that sort of day changed my entire life. I. Uh, you know, in conjunction with taking this class, I developed a love of writing and, and, of, uh, and of reading. So started writing poetry almost every day. and realized it was, I was a god-awful poet um, when I was about 20 or 21. And so then I turned to short fiction and uh, started writing short stories. And And that was that. Something you said
0: speaks a little bit to the obsession of being a writer. You began by telling us why you write, and there seemed to be something... Tortured about it, you were sort of um, self-flagellating. Uh, I have this scene of you sitting in your office earlier today, asking yourself, "Why do I write? Why do I? Why do I write?" <laughs> and, that, and that torture of being the writer, but also this sense of the obsession, because I don't know many teenagers who would be reading two books a week. Is there something obsessive about the character or the, the nature of writers?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think uh, most people who are involved in the arts are obsessive people on some on some level or another, and usually I think on a on a, on a pretty important pretty big level. Um, most of the writers I know are very obsessive about their work. Um, you know, you and I have talked about the fact that that I tend to devote about three hours a day, five or six days a week to it. So you know, I, I guess t- there's there's the obsessive sort of, uh, uh, my obsessive concern with getting a certain number of hours or, you know, or minutes in each week. Um, but a lot of that comes with, uh, fear of, it comes from fear of failure and it comes with this, this, this these obsessive thoughts about succeeding at it and, uh, and, you know, in doing well. Um, and, and for me really, that just means writing well, you know, hopefully publishing at some point, but, but writing well. Uh, but there's also an obsession with, you know, again, just the act of putting language down on paper, um, And it's funny because when I said today that I was trying to figure out what to write about, uh, I want to start a new book. I want to start a new new novel and I don't have any any ideas that are working for me. I've got tons of ideas I've written down and that I've pursued a little bit, but none of them is really – working. No, no I'm not really drawn to any of them enough to spend 3 or 4 years on the, on a single project. So I was sitting there at my desk for 3 hours today just uh trying to come up with ideas, trying to come up with stories and I thought why am I doing this? I don't even I don't even have an idea, but I have this desire to write something. And I and I had the thought, well god, I wish someone would just give me a story just so I could start writing the sentences. And so that's what it's always about for me. Again, you know, just stringing together sentences, playing with structure, creating the narrative. That's what I love and It's funny to me sometimes that it could be about anything. I almost don't even care what the story is as long as I could tell a story. So yeah, I think think there's something obsessive about that. (laughs) I don't know enough about writing
0: and writers to be able to answer this question, but I, I can ask you, which is, I think there are as many ways of going about the craft of writing as one can imagine. It must be a very diverse array of approaches that people bring to how they write. Yeah. And yet you, you seem to have a very particular and disciplined approach to this craft driven by various motivations. Mm-hmm. So maybe speak a little bit more to what are your approaches to the craft of getting product, as it were, getting yeah. something written.
1: Yeah. You know, there's two quotes that I like to use a lot in class with my students. You know, one is uh, so one is attributed to William Faulkner and he um, he was once asked if he writes only when he's inspired or if he writes every day. And he said, you know, I write, uh, only when I'm inspired, but I make sure I'm inspired every day. And so, uh, so there's something to that, this idea of forcing yourself to do something you love, right? You know, of course, if it's something you love, you would think you'd want to do it every day, but because of the level of difficulty involved in it, um, it's a hard thing to sort of get yourself to do on a daily basis, even if you, you know, even though you might love it. Um, Another quote that I, I like uh, to use a lot in classes, uh, attributed to Doctor J, and uh, so Julius Irving, and he said once that being a professional means doing what you love to do on the days that you don't want to do it, and, and that 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 one I like even more because there's really something to that. You know, we we I think we we sometimes when we turn what we love into a profession or we turn it into something that we hope will be a profession, it suddenly becomes a lot less fun, and. Um, even though we still might love it, we might not be be pulled to do it every single day. So, uh, so I yeah, I, I force myself to sit down for a certain number of minutes each week and put the work in. And I and I really do believe very uh, strongly in this idea that when you sit down to start working, the the inspiration will eventually come. Um, for me, it almost always does. You know, I'll I'll uh, I'll be sitting there sometimes for an hour and a half, sometimes two hours with nothing coming, and then in that last hour a great idea will occur to me and I'll work for, you know, for 60 minutes on that idea. And then I sit down the next day and I can put in a full three hours, you know, on that thing that came to me at the end of that the day before. So what is that alchemy, the balance between having talent
0: or genius matched with the effort and the labor that needs to come with sparking that genius or bringing that genius out
1: yeah, well, I, I, I guess I'd, I'd first say that I, I wish I had either talent or genius or, or both. Or both. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I know I don't have any. I know there's no genius in there. There's definitely talent. There's I'll let others talent. speak to genius. I, I, you know, it, it's funny. I think a lot about talent. It's this. It, it, it's it's a mystery to me because it's the, it's this intangible thing that I can't put my finger on. I can't touch it, and you know. Eh, People are very fond of saying he or she is so talented at this or at that. And I I guess I just believe in hard work. Um, And, you know, certainly there's a mystery. I don't mean to to make it sound so workmanlike because certainly there's a mystery to the process. There's this mysterious aspect of it, right, where when you put in that work, when you're sitting there for me in that three hour period, often things will come that I don't expect, you know, uh, scenes, characters, sentences that I didn't plan to write and they'll just they'll just come because I'm sitting there and because I'm focused. And so that's really what I believe in. I believe in focusing, closing the door, shutting out all the noise, turning off my phone and the internet and just focusing and saying for 3 hours I'll do nothing but this. And for you know a lot of times that means staring out a window for 3 straight hours. But again, hopefully During that time, something will come, and hopefully, it'll come soon. So I don't have to waste a full three-hour session. But you know, it's it's it is it's a very mysterious, very magical process. You know, the the way that art is created, and and all artists do it differently. I know a lot of writers who just write in spurts for hours and days at a time, and then they don't write for a month straight. Um, I I can't do it that way. I'm a very scheduled person. And I build it into my day, just like running for 30 minutes and showering in, in the morning <laughs> and, you know, uh, sending my kids off to school. It's just another part of my day, so.
2: Smile, an everlasting smile. A smile could bring you near to me. Please don't ever. Let me ban you gone, cause that would bring a tear to me. Oh, this world has lost its glory. Let's start a brand new story now, my love. Right now, there'll be no other time, and I can show you how, my love. Talk in everlasting words And dedicate them all to me For this I'll give you all my life I'm here if you should call on me Oh, you think that I don't even mean A single word I say
0: so on writing so how would you describe your style or your voice
1: yeah boy um, how would i describe my voice i don't know how i i don't know what adjectives i would use to describe my voice but what I, i guess what i could say about it is um you know while i do believe in being yourself as a writer and kind of developing your own style I I do think that there's a big misconception about the way that style and, and, and you know that voice is developed. Um, I think and, and I think this misconception applies to a lot of the arts, but very particularly to, to writing, and it's that a lot of you know a lot of non-writers think that you are you know you're born with this talent or this genius that we talked about, right? And then you sit down. At a typewriter or computer and lightning bolts shoot out of your fingertips and a Pulitzer Prize winning novel is born. Uh, And and it just doesn't work that way. And and what I tell my students a lot is that, you know, writing is a learned process. It's no different than any other art form. So just the way a budding uh, player of the guitar might sit and listen to Keith Richards for hours every day in his basement and try to copy that or mimic it or, you know, emulate it. Just the way that, that person learns to play guitar. Writers learn to write by mimicking other writers, and I and I think your you know the your voice develops by kind of trying on the voices of other writers and seeing what fits you, and you discard a lot of them, but others you keep, and uh and you you know you learn from those voices, you learn from those writers along the way, and I think the you know, the the voice that you end up with is almost always an amalgam of many 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 writers that you've admired over the years and you've fallen in love with, and then this sort of core voice that's always been within you but needed to be kind of teased out and needed to be explored and developed and um, and honed. You mentioned
0: Salinger earlier and you mentioned how he was an influential or he, he was inspirational to you. He was influential to you becoming and being and enjoying writing and reading. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that influence.
1: Yeah, he, he was, uh, still is a huge influence on I me. Mean, I mean, I, I would probably go so far as to say that JD Salinger is, is the reason that I, that I write and that, you know, that I still, still write today. That's certainly that he's the reason I started writing. Um, my, uh, my father, to go back to that word obsessive, he was an obsessive JD Salinger fan. I think I took it to a different level actually than he did, but he was very, uh, very much into his work. And, um, and he he kind of got me reading salinger at uh in high school when i when i st- really started reading a lot at, you know like i said at age 17 and then uh my dad died when i was 20 and shortly before he died uh he had a bunch of boxes of books from his mother's basement in buffalo new york um sent to lo- to our house in las vegas which is where i grew up and a lot of those books were there were several first editions of salinger books one of one of the uh one of the boxes contained an original uh, uh, New—the—the uh, the, the New Yorker from 1965 that uh, that contained J.D. Salinger's last short story, which is called "Hapworth 19," uh, "Hapworth 16," "1924," and it's still—it's one of my prized possessions. And it, it was sort of a life-changing moment for me. It was for Christmas one year that he did this, and and I reread all all of Salinger's work, and and I really became. You know, again, to use that to use that word again, just extremely obsessive about Salinger's writing to the point that later in my twenties, I rented a car and I found his house in Cornish, New Hampshire, and didn't knock on the door, but I, but I did go there. And uh, I, you know, I've probably read each of Salinger's four books. Uh, I mean, I don't know, fifteen, maybe twenty times each. You know, just um, reading and studying them over and over again. And, and but again, it's all, it was always the language that inspired me. Um, his voice is is still to me so unique. And um, you know, so so original and so unlike any of the other American voices that uh, that were publishing at that time that it just stands out to me and uh, and I, I just find it moving I find it artful I find it beautiful and and still when I read his stories today after reading them so for so you know so many times over and over again I'm I'm still blown away by just the the, the rhythm and the cadence uh, and, and the kind of baroque nature of his sentences. So, yeah. And, and it, you know, it just, his work inspired me to start writing, um, in addition to Chris Harris <laughs> in, in that high school classroom.
0: I think you told me that um, you retrieved a small artifact by which to remember your visit to Mr. Salinger's abode.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I rented this car when I was living in New York City. I had collected a number of articles that had been written about J.D. Salinger and where. He might live by journalists who had, who had found his house. And, 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 and in none of the articles did any of them state where it actually was, but a lot of them dropped these clues. And so I made a kind of a, a, a veritable treasure map that I used to find the house. And I, I didn't want to bother him. I didn't want to, to knock on the door. But I just sat there for a long time in the car looking at the house. And it was this was after my father did uh, died. And it was kind of a spiritual moment for me, a moment, a moment of connection with my dad. So there's this long winding gravel path that led up to J.D. Salinger's door from the main road. And so I, I went up and I took a, uh, a rock from the path. And so it's a, it's a paperweight on my desk and in my office at Creighton. But I had to figure out if I was actually in the right place without knocking on the door. And while I was sitting in this car, this rental car, a, uh, a mail delivery truck pulled up and this postal uh, worker delivers the mail and, and he drives away. And I had a moment where I had to make a a moral decision. It's a federal offense to, to open a mailbox and and look at someone's mail. But I uh, but I decided to do it to see if I was in the right place. Then I opened the mailbox, and on the the top of the pile was an Eddie Bauer catalog that said Jerome David Salinger. So J.D. Salinger shopped at Eddie Bauer, evidently. <laughs> I didn't touch it. I closed the mailbox right away, and that was pretty much it. I drove off with my rock, and and that was it. Yeah. I love that story. <laughs> It was it was an odd thing to do, admittedly, but I was twenty five. Describe a little bit for us your
0: first work, "Greetings from Below."
1: Yeah, so uh, so "Greetings from Below," uh, which is a collection of linked short stories, um, came about uh, from one short story that I wrote and published called "True Love Versus the Cigar Store Indian." That was kind of the first short story that I ever wrote that that really and truly worked for me. And when I say worked, I mean it was kind of the first story that I wrote that was actually a story and that I thought was pretty good. And I had been, you know, at that point I had been writing for about eight years pretty seriously. So from 17 to about 25 I had a a mentor during that time named John Ersfeld, who was a novelist who taught at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He was a family friend of mine, and he coached me. and He would read everything I ever wrote, and usually he would read my stories and and make you know little little comments at the end and give them back to me. and I would I would heed his advice and write a new story. and This one when he read it. He sent it back to me, and it and it said you need to send this out today. And he sent me a li- And he wrote a little list of magazines that I should send it to: The New Yorker, Harper's, um, the New England Review, who ended up publishing it. And uh, I, I think maybe he had, he knew some editors at these places. I can't remember. But I sent it to everywhere he told me to to, uh, to send it. And the New England Review called me, and they said they wanted to publish it. And that was always one of my favorite um, literary journals, based out of Middlebury College on the East Coast. So when that happened, you know, it was a, certainly a breakthrough moment for me. It was my very first publication. I got paid for it. It was in a prominent journal. And I thought, you know, I really like this character. I think I want to keep pursuing this same character in mm-hmm. True Love versus The Cigar Store Indian. So I kept writing stories about him. The character's name is Nick Danzy. Um, he's named after a... Uh, a copy editor I worked with at a publishing company in New York city named Phil Danzi. So anyway, anyway, I I kept writing stories about this guy. I didn't publish any more of them for about three or four years. I wrote four or five awful ones after that and um, nobody wanted them. And then uh, when I was about 29, I wrote from about 29 to, I don't know, 31 or 32, I wrote seven or eight more and, uh, and those ended up getting, getting published. And, um, and before I knew it, I had the collection And so when I say it's linked, you know, if you read them chronologically in the order that they're arranged, it it should, I hope, read like a novel with with a narrative arc to it and a beginning and a middle and an end. But then, of course, each story has its own arc as well, so... Talk a little bit about uh, the the story arc of the book. Um, so Nick suffers from various uh, fixations and sort of fetishes of a sexual nature. They kind of control his thoughts and a lot of the decisions that he makes. He has a girlfriend named Annie who he's been kind of cheating on uh, off and on throughout the book. Uh, he feels you know, incredibly bad about it. It's this sort of moral dilemma he has throughout the novel. Uh, at the same time, his father has uh, has passed away recently, and he's dealing with. Uh, his mother's kind of, um, unraveling psychological situation. Uh, she develops, um, a, a compulsion for, for stealing and, uh, gamb- in I'm sorry, uh, for gambling, but then also later in the, in the book for stealing. Uh, but, but she was primarily a gambling addict. And so Nick has to deal with that. So there are various conflicts throughout the book that kind of emerge and, uh, that Nick has to deal with. But, but the main one are, are these kind of sexual impulses that he has that he can't quite control. And you probably get asked the question, Every time you do a reading, are you Nick? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have many, many times, um, which is funny because my own father died. Nick grows up in Las Vegas in the book. And of course, that's where I grew up. Um my mother never unravelled psychologically and developed a gambling addiction. Uh I have never suffered from the fixations that Nick suffers from. Uh you know Nick is a composite character like all my characters are and and you know I think most most fiction writers would tell you that their characters are are born of experiences that they've had, but also stories they've been told by other people, you know, maybe things that they read about, um, uh, things that they witness people do. You know, you kind of combine all these things together to create a character ultimately. I really believe in that process. I think that's where the richest characters tend to come from. You know, so yeah, Nick is kind of a, he's, he's, he's actually a, um, a combination. His personality is kind of more a combination of two people I used to know when I lived in San Francisco, whose names I'll protect. <laughs>
0: but. So tell us about your new novel, Such As You Can, yeah. and how and why it might be different, uh, a different form of work from your previous writing.
1: Yeah, so the, the novel I just finished is called The Brightest Place in the World. Um, it's unpublished. Uh, my, my agent is sending it out very soon to publishers, so we'll see what happens there. But um, I wanted to write a, a traditional novel, so not a linked collection or a novel and stories, but, uh, but an actual novel. The, uh, the book begins with, um, an experience that, that is taken from my, uh, my childhood. My, my father, as I said, was an electrical engineer and he worked for a company called Pepcon, the Pacific Engineering and Production Company of Nevada. And, uh, Pepcon used to manufacture a chemical called ammonium perchlorite, which is a highly combustible oxidizer that, uh, was sold to NASA for the space shuttle program, uh, also used in ballistic missile engines. So highly flammable substance. And on May fourth, nineteen eighty-eight, my my father's plant uh, exploded in a series of several uh, explosions that registered three point five on the Richter scale. Uh, two people died. Uh, hundreds of people were injured around the Las Vegas community. Levelled houses and, uh, and buildings for uh, in, in a concentric. I, I forget exactly how many miles, but uh, for many miles around the plant. But it was something that I wanted to write about for a really long time. Uh, my dad survived the explosion. So in in my fictionalized account of it which is set in 2012 a chemical plant blows up on the outskirts of Nevada and uh of Las Vegas rather in the Nevada desert and then the novel traces the lives of four characters who are directly affected by it and it kind of shows how their paths intertwine um over the course of uh, of about a year. But it's very different than anything I had done before. I that book was a very long process it took me about 7 years to write and I destroyed many many Chapters, probably 100 pages or more that weren't working that I had to rewrite. Um, even when I had a draft, uh, I wrote three subsequent drafts that were pretty um, drastic rewrites of the original. And they, so the fourth draft that I have right now that my agent will, will soon send out was um, a, a product of a lot of destroying, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of tossing away of pages that didn't work and kind of rewriting certain parts of the narrative to make it. Uh, more compelling, you know, more interesting, uh, and and to make the ending work a lot better, frankly. So, yeah. so so I've seen the binders of edits
0: of just one short story that you have produced and published. <clears throat> yeah. And so I can't imagine the editing process and the challenge that that would bring for you for a full-length novel. So maybe you speak a little bit about that editing process Especially the editing process once you actually hand it off to someone else, such as an agent.
1: So I I tend to edit as I go, um, but then I also put my work through extensive edits once I've got a full draft. And you now, as you mentioned, with my short stories, um, for 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 all the stories that I've published, I, I probably have anywhere from 40 to 50 drafts of each one. And like you said, I do keep them in these big three uh, three ring you know, three inch binders. Um, and I, I I print them out and keep the drafts so that I can look at my line edits and see the edits that I've done um, throughout the process and you know maybe I'll go back and reinsert a sentence that I've taken out because I thought it wasn't working originally but now I sort of miss it <laughs> and I want it back so that's why I print them out and keep them that way well you know with the with the novel it was a little different I didn't print out drafts as I was working only because of well really because of the nature of of novel writing which is that you know it's it's this big several hundred page monster. And a lot of it's just for, you know, for me, a lot of the, the, the composition process was just getting it down. Now I did edit as I went, but I was editing on the screen mostly. Um, so I don't really have a lot of those edits like I do for my short stories, but no, I mean, like I said, it took me about seven years just to get a solid draft because I would, you know, I, I would typically write in you know, a three hour session, I'd maybe write, um, you know, a, a page uh, maybe in about an hour, and then I'd spend the next two hours reworking that page. And so, you know, for oh God, a lot of days, I was lucky if I had one solid page at the end of a three-hour session. You know, now sometimes I was moving a little more quickly and I would get more down than that, but, but revision is a big part of it for me. And as I said earlier, especially just tinkering with sentences, it, it doesn't come from being meticulous as much as it comes from wanting to get the voice just right. You know the the biggest part of the storytelling experience for me is not just getting the story down, but telling it in a way that has energy and that has power and that draws the reader in via the diction and the syntax, uh, not just the 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 uh, the things that are happening on the page. So, but getting that diction and that syntax right involves a lot of um, just thinking about rhythm and cadence and sentence structure and uh, and the poetry of a sentence and the way that sentence connects with the next one and the one before it. So that just takes a long time. You said seven years, which seems an astonishing period of
0: time to dedicate oneself to any form of creative expression. Yeah. Is that typical?
1: Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, you go through these, these, these uh, periods when you're working on a book for that long where you think it's atypical and you think that you are the worst and slowest writer on planet Earth, the least prolific <laughs> that has ever been born. But I have a, I have a good friend, um, from graduate school named Zizi Packer, who wrote uh, a collection of short stories called Drinking Coffee Elsewhere. And, uh, she's been, she's been working on a novel since 2003 that she still has not finished. She published an excerpt uh, of it in the New Yorker few years ago, but, um, you know, 15 years on the same novel. Uh, I believe it's about the Buffalo soldier the soldiers during the civil war. And, uh, I, I can't wait to read it, but she still isn't finished. And I've talked to her several times over the years about how long it's been taking her to write that novel. And she says I- exactly what I just said to you, which is, you know, the good writing takes time. Good writing takes time. And, um, so I don't know how many pages she's discarded, but she's said hundreds. And so, you know, I look at someone like that and I think, okay, well, seven years isn't too bad.
0: <laughs> you are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
2: Passing seasons all but fade away Into misty clouds of autumn gray As I sit here looking at the street Little figures quickly moving feet I'm just a pebble
0: Chittenden. My guest today is author David Philip Mullins.
2: Come along with me and I'll show you how. Take my hand, I'll show you
0: how to live. Do you ever feel that when you've you've written something, maybe you've spent so long with it, you just want to publish it or otherwise you want to want to put it in a drawer, but then when you do go and promote it and people are responding to your work at readings and this kind of thing, mm. that you fall uh, in love again with the work that you've created?
1: Well, I, I wish I could say yes. I think <laughs> the the feeling is usually the opposite. Um, you know, when when my first book came out by the time I actually started promoting it and traveling around doing readings, I honestly I was so tired of looking at it that I couldn't wait to start something new. Um, and that's not to say I didn't love it anymore. I still love the characters and I love the book. But I think what happened to me with that book is that it took me, you know, there was that was about another 7 years for that one. So it took me so long to write it that I was just very excited about starting this new project, the novel that I, that I explained. And I really wanted to get going on it. And as, and as fun as it was to do those readings and to chat with audiences and, and, uh, and, and do Q&As and that sort of thing, in the back of my mind, I was always thinking, I really want to be writing. I want to be working on this other project. Because, um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, I think when you start working on any writing project, whether it's short or long, it's a process of falling in love, right? So um, the beginning of that process is always great, right? It's like actually falling in love for real, right? You're, you're smitten at first and you just want to spend every minute of, of every day with that person, just like with a new writing project. So it was always in the back of my head and I always wanted to get back to the new one. Um, like with the novel that I just finished, uh, I, I love it and, I, and I, I'm proud of it. But I'm so sick of it. I can't. I can't wait to start a new project. And now I have to sell it. And if it if it sells, then I have to go promote it. And so I I think that's that's kind of a hard part of the process. Yeah, you know that 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 kind of obsession with language that I was talking about and, and revision. Um, that's that's in large part due to the fact that you know, the, the the fact that you want to get away from it and start something new is is often because of that that revision and that obsession with language. You spend so much time with it. And you spend so much time meticulously and neurotically tinkering that once you're done, you're done, and you just you really you, you you want to move on. So, so you teach creative writing. Yeah.
0: What are some of the perceptions of the creative practice and perhaps the business considerations that your students come into the class with?
1: I think a lot of my students come into the classroom. Uh, with a couple of notions, I think, I think one of them is that they're, they're going to make a lot of money at it. And I, uh, I, I, I really try hard to kind of dispel them of the notion that there's a lot of money in this because there really isn't for most writers. You know for most writers it's a labor a uh, labor of love. And I, I try really hard not to be discouraging and not to uh, to burst their bubble, but to very gently, but effectively say, look, you have to do this because, you know, as I said earlier, you because you love to write sentences, not because you want to make a million dollars. So there's that to grapple with a little bit, you know. And of course, and I, I was I, I was the same way when I was in my early 20s. I I had read stories of the big advances that some novelists had gotten, and you know, you go into it thinking, oh, well, that's going to be me, and you realize, hopefully, quickly that. Yeah, it could be you, but you have to get pretty darn lucky for that to happen and, and almost never does it have much to do with the quality of the work. It has to do with luck, you know, being in the right place at the right time, writing the right kind of book. So there's that. Um, and then I think in terms of the writing process itself – I think that there are two things that I, that I really grapple with a lot with students. One is that a, a lot of students want to write only when they're inspired, which we talked about already, right? Um, and they, they have a hard time at first understanding the idea of putting in just hours and hours and hours e- each week like you would at a job, right? So convincing them of the importance of that is often difficult. And the other thing is revision. You know, a lot of students don't like to revise, um, and I don't say that to disparage my students in any way. I, th- this is this is very common among writers. You, you, you know, they like to create, they like to compose, they like to pour stories out, but revision is hard for a lot of writers. And I think that you know, the writers that tend to to succeed are, the th- I think, the ones that that fall in love with revision as much as the composition process. So I I try pretty hard to kind of get them to understand the importance of that. The importance of tinkering and the importance of just falling in love with rewriting. Is that the poet Paul Engle, who uh, was one of the uh, the original founders of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, said that writing is rewriting, what you've already rewritten. And so that's something I talk a lot about in class. Do your students just think you're a fun hater? Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think they do. <laughs> I, I I tend to be um, I have very high standards in the classroom. And, uh, I don't think that all my students like that. Um, I hope some of them do, but I, I expect a lot of them. And, um, and I, and the reason is that I know that they can, they can do better and I push them to do better. I push them to be the best writers that they can be. And, um, often that, that means, you know, not patting them on the back, but saying, okay, this is pretty good. However, here are the nine or 10 other things that you need to think about. Here are the nine or 10 other things that you can develop further and that you can be doing better. Criticism is hard to hear. Nobody wants to pour their heart and soul into a narrative and only to hear their instructor say, "Well, it's not quite working." And here's what you can do to make it better. But that's how you improve as a writer by taking that that criticism and um, and, and working harder. So, without
0: necessarily having to explain in too much detail the full curriculum, what is the general flow of a creative writing? course that, that you would take your students through so that they have transitioned from being a, a willing, if um, rough talent, to one that is perhaps uh, quite polished?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess there are, in terms of creative writing pedagogy, at least for my classes, there are really four kind of components of each course. Um, the first is, is reading the published work of other writers. Um, and, uh, and, and we tend to do that reading, reading and discussing the published work of other writers. And we tend to do that as, as much, um, as I can in a, in a, in a 15 week session, because that's so important. You know, again, learning from, from structure, learning from the language of other writers that you, uh, that you hopefully fall in love with. So that's a big part of it. Um, Craft talks would be another part of the course. So, you know, at least once a week, I'll give kind of a, a talk. It's really more of a discussion about a, a particular element of craft. You know, point of view, exposition, structure, etc. Um, the the third component would be um, exercises. So, I, I assign a lot of writing exercises during the week uh, that students will do either in the classroom or at home, and then we discuss them afterward. And then the fourth component, which is the most important, is workshopping. So. Uh, Students in a fiction writing class will write uh, several short stories in the course of a semester and workshop those, which means uh, every student in the class reads the story first and then we all sit around in a circle and discuss the work at hand and we talk about what's working uh, and and what's not working. And hopefully in the course of a given semester, you know, through those four, four components of the class, students are developing. I, I do I do think that there's a bit of a misunderstanding about creative writing curriculum though on the, on the university level, which is that you know in a, in a given four year period uh, between the freshman year and the senior year that a student can kind of fully develop as a writer and emerge from a, a, a university education as a fully formed, you know, uh, a literary artist. And, and I, I think that's a huge misconception and it's an unfortunate one. You know, it takes years and years and years of practice, just like any art form, to get really good at it. It's no different, you know, as I was, as I was saying earlier, uh, than developing as a musician. Um, it's not about just taking four years of coursework. It's about obsessively practicing it day in and day out. Um, so I try to get them to understand that, that the four years that they're With me at 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 Creighton is hopefully a process of development, of learning, and of exploration. But they then need to go off on their own and keep doing it.
0: You know, so the humanities, perhaps to some, seem to be in general under assault in terms of their continuing relevance. Yeah. So how, how do you think about the continued relevance of the written word in our culture and our society and as being valuable to be the subject of hard, ongoing tuition?
1: Well, that's a big one. Um, you know, I, th- I had a, uh, a professor in graduate school named Frank Conroy, who was the director of the workshop at the time. Um one of the greatest teachers I've ever worked with and uh, and he said that pop culture is the writer's headwind. and I, and I, I always remember that when i'm when I'm having a particularly difficult writing day, you know I because I, I often want to sort of give up and and do some other kind of um, artistic work. You know, I've, even even in my 40s, I thought, well, maybe I'm a screenwriter instead, or <laughs> maybe I'm a painter. Um, and, and often when I have those feelings, it's because I think, well, what's the point of even doing what I'm doing? This is so hard, and it's taking so long, and I'm going to finish this novel, and may I don't know if I'm lucky a thousand people will read it but probably not even that many, right? And uh, and, and you know, I think a big part of that is is people are interested in other things. They're interested in movies, maybe. They're interested in in whatever bright, flashy, uh, noisy thing is online in front of them on the screen at any given moment, right? And so you you you're kind of competing with that as a writer at all times, and it's easy to want to sort of give up. But I. I, I just fundamentally believe in the power of the written word. I believe in the transformative experience of narrative art. Um, you know, the, some of the most moving experiences I've had in my life have been have involved reading novels or reading a poem or listening to a, a, a writer read his or her own work uh, at a public reading. You know, experiences that have brought me to tears and that have made me think about the world in a different way or about human beings in a different way. Um you know, I, I like to think I'm a pretty empathic human being, and I, I attribute my empathy in large part to reading and to understanding human nature via the written word, not just via human experience, but um, but through how other how other humans write about that experience. And I think it's, it's invaluable, and I, I hope I always believe in it, and I hope novels don't disappear from our culture. I don't think they will. I think they'll continue to endure. But yeah, but you know the novelist is always fighting the television and then the movie screen and now the internet. So
0: it's interesting that you speak to empathy and this idea of understanding the human condition more if if we read and absorb the perspectives and the narratives of others in different ways. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to know if our times are any more traumatic than previous times or times to come, but it feels like reading would benefit some of the disharmony that we see in the world around us, mm. which is my way into asking you, what are you reading now? And what sort of recommendations would you have for people that might be listening?
1: Yeah, you know, I, well, right now I'm reading No Country for Old Men, um, because the uh, the novel that I think I want to write <laughs> um, might have some similarities to it. I, I was talking earlier about the ideas that I'm I'm kind of sifting through to come up with a, a story to tell. And the one that I'm most drawn to involves uh, drug running and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and 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 murder in the Nevada desert, and it's it's partially fictional and partially based on some reading of uh, actual events that I've been doing. Um, but No Country for Old Men is a similar sort of story, so that's what I'm reading right now, um, and I, I absolutely love it. I love the work of Cormac McCarthy. Um, speaking of, of McCarthy, uh, the, the Road is one of my favorite novels of all time. Um, you know, and speaking of being moved to tears during a reading experience, the first time I read The Road, uh, I, I, I cried almost every time I sat down to read it. Um, so that would be a recommendation. I just finished uh, uh, Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. And I think it's one of the best novels I've read in 10 years. Uh, so I would highly recommend that as as well. Um, boy, what else am I reading? Um I'm reading a great book on screenwriting called "Save the Cat," and not because I want to write a screenplay, but it's a book that that talks about narrative structure in a way that I think is very effective uh, for for students and uh, you know for writers of any age. And I think one of the big challenges of writing a novel is understanding narrative structure. And even if you've written one and you understand how structure works conceptually and theoretically. Implementing narrative structure is one of the biggest challenges for me as a writer. So I'm, I'm kind of constantly reading how-to guides on narrative structure. I mean, I've been doing it for 25 years, and I still don't think I understand structure the, you know as effectively as I should. I
0: think you've told me before that you have an array of books on your desk, and so you sit down to endure or enjoy, however it turns out, the three hours that you're dedicated to writing. Mm. And sometimes, if you're not actually writing you will turn to this what would you call it a thought shelf or an inspiration shelf yeah what's on that shelf
1: it's it's almost always the same books uh, Charles D'Ambrosio is there uh, so, a, a couple of his short story collections um, books by Michael Byers uh, Joyce Carol Oates uh, a Tom a writer I love named Tom Jones who's now deceased uh, Raymond Carver certainly J.D. Salinger um, st. Lucy's home for werewolves I believe it's called God, the, 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 the Karen Russell Karen Russell's uh, short story collection uh, it's fantastic yeah I mean honestly there's so many I could go on and on and on um, there's a collection right now that I that I have on that uh, in that pile by Kelly link um, who's a just a lovely short story writer of uh, uh, narratives that are kind of um, horror narratives Um Uh, contemporary horror horror narratives. You know, I I tend to just sort of pile on books that have um, affected me in some way by the power of their voice. One of the things I talk about a lot in class is the idea of influence, right? And so Harold Harold Bloom, the Yale scholar, uh, has a very famous book out called The Anxiety of Influence. And, And I think it was in the late 90s, Jonathan Lethem wrote kind of a response to that book called The Ecstasy of Influence, which he published in The New Yorker. And so the anxiety of influence is all about how we can never escape um the uh the writers who came before us and we can never truly develop our own voice because we're always standing on the shoulder of uh, shoulders of giants and lethem said well this is something to be celebrated this is this isn't a negative thing this is a positive thing so let's let's celebrate our inspirations and let's allow ourselves to be influenced by the work of others. And that's kind of how I think when I'm writing. So when I'm stuck, uh, you know, as you said, I've got these books on my desk and I'll just open one. and I'll, I'll allow myself to be inspired by a random paragraph I open the book to. Um, and for me, that just involves reading the paragraph in my head or even aloud, and just hearing the sentences, hearing the beauty of the sentences, hearing the rhythm of the sentences, and just kind of getting myself into the into the mode of wanting to write well, you know, being inspired by the sound of someone else's prose. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of times that has to do with a very conscious thought process, which is along the lines of thinking, okay, well, the person who wrote that beautiful paragraph is a mere mortal just like I am. And he or she had to learn to write. And this writer had to practice just like I did. Um, you know, In other words, this person isn't a god. This person isn't immortal. Um, he or she went through the same hard process that I'm going through now. And if they could do it, I can do it too. And so that's kind of a big part of it too, just reminding myself that – I have the ability just like all these other writers on my, on my desk. You know, I'm no different than they are. I mean, they might be better than I am. They probably are, but, uh, but I could still do it. So.
0: What three literary characters would you pick to describe who you are?
1: Describe who I am? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Hmm, that's a tough one. I guess I'm a little bit. I mean, I have to choose Holden Caulfield. I guess since we've been talking about JD Salinger a lot, uh, I, I suppose I'm a little bit like Holden Caulfield. At least I was when I was younger. One of the things that drew me to the catcher in the rye when I was uh, when I was a kid is just that the kind of adventure that he goes on in the book. And I've always been a pretty adventurous person. Uh, you know, I did find JD Salinger's house. I have my own little ad- adventure in that sense. Um, so yeah, okay, Holden Caulfield. Um, I guess I'm a I'm a little maybe a little uh, jay gatsby <laughs> not that i have the money or the or the wealth of the celebrity but i like a good party uh, <laughs> as you know um and I, I i kind of have expensive taste even though i don't have the the wealth to justify it <laughs> I like, as you know Stuart, i like a good martini um and a great meal uh let's see god who's a, what would a third be maybe um I have no idea why Raskolnikov from Crime and Punishment just popped into my head. I'm not going to kill a landlord, but, uh, but, but I, I tend, I tend to brood the way Raskolnikov does in that, in that novel. I tend to overthink things. Um, and maybe I tend to, to justify bad decisions I've made by, by constantly looping around in my head and coming up with a, a way to make it, um, uh, an acceptable thing that I've done in my life <laughs> without, without getting too specific. That's a pretty vague answer. Say it's here
3: where our pieces fall in place Any rain softly kisses us on the face Anywhere means we're running We can sleep and see them coming Where we drift and call it dreaming We can weep and call it singing
0: Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org.
3: We can bow because our music's warmer than blood. Where we see enough to follow, we can hear when we are hollow. Where we keep the light we give her, we can lose and call it living where the sun isn't only sinking fair
0: To listen to this show again and to hear past shows download the podcast at iTunes search for Lives Radio Show with Stuart Chittenden and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show we have, And
3: we get a chance to say Before we ease away For all the love you've left behind, you can have mine.
0: I've been in conversation with author David Philip Mullins.
1: David, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Stuart. This has been a real pleasure. I didn't even realize it was Stuart. So it's, it's so good. Can you edit that out? Okay, yeah. sorry.
0: <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.